strives to bring the church world and the art world closer together. My name is Matt Anderson. I am so glad you can join us for this episode. And again, whatever platform on which you're listening to the Mattcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and review. Deeply appreciate that. Well, I'm very excited about the lineup of episodes we have for December. And we're going to kick it off today by talking about one of the greatest writers of all time, and that's uh, Charles Dickens. Um, Personally, I think he might be my favorite writer of all time. Uh, His portrayals of uh, Victorian England are really unmatched in their creativity and vividness. Uh, It is really the background of many of his great stories. Um, including his most famous one, which is A Christmas Carol. I would really encourage you to get a hold of any of his books and just read them. You, You can't go wrong. He has such a wonderful way of pulling you into the story. Um, it almost makes you feel like you're there on the street or you're in the factory or you're in the orphanage or you're in Scrooge's bedchamber, uh, as Dickens uses words brilliantly to paint scenery. My personal favorite of his books is A Tale of Two Cities. And uh, if you ever get a chance to read it, I hope you do. My favorite character in the story is an old shoemaker who we, we meet near the beginning, who either cannot speak or just refuses to speak. He's very, he's unkempt, he's disheveled, Uh, For all intents and purposes, he just seems to be aimless. Um, Probably today we would say he was a man of the street. Um, We find out that he lost his daughter many years ago. But when his daughter ends up reappearing in the story, the shoemaker suddenly cleans himself up, and we find out that he's actually an articulate doctor who is the picture of competence Uh, It's quite a transformation. Later in the story, uh, we see that uh, Dr. Manette's daughter and son-in-law start to talk about leaving Paris and pursuing some other things. And um, someone who lives near Dr. Manette can hear from his his flat uh, the sound of him making shoes again. And to me... That's a wonderful portrayal of like addiction, transformation, repentance, that we always have things like we all have our versions of shoemaking that we can go to when life isn't working. Uh, It's where we go to to find relief or some sort of coping mechanism. But the Lord has better things for us than that. He was a phenomenal writer. But like the rest of us, Dickens was a complicated guy. Um, You could say he was a guy with two lives. He was born in 1812, 
Uh, he had early challenges uh, in his life. Uh, his father was not really that great with money and ended up going to debtor's prison. It pulled Charles out of school um, and he had to start working. Uh, he had to work in a factory under deplorable conditions, conditions that would later find their way into his stories. Um, but eventually, after some back and forth, uh, his father was back out of prison, and he eventually became a journalist, and then, of course, later a writer. He married uh, Catherine Hogarth at the age of 24, and they immediately expanded their family. In all, he and Catherine would have 10 children, uh, a big family even by 1800s standards. Um, we don't have a lot of specifics, but we know at some point in the marriage, uh, some speculate it was actually early, Charles was not a happy man. Um, now there's wild speculation about Charles Dickens' life, none of which can be verified, so it won't find its way here on this episode. But um, what we do know is that Charles' unhappiness um, literally caused him to divide their bedroom in half. And his wife was essentially banished uh, from the home. Um, eventually, in 1858, he would, uh, he and his children would remain, and his wife would would be banished from the property. Um, pretty scandalous stuff for the 1800s. But he would give Catherine a, a generous yearly stipend for the rest of her life, uh, and they had no contact from that point on. Uh, unfortunately, however, Dickens would write uh, a letter to one of the uh, the London papers, and he would use that opportunity to slander his ex-wife um, about her mental state and, and other things. It was a pretty low-class move. Well, shortly after that, he began a relationship with British actress Ellen Turnin, who was 17 or 18 at the time. Dickens was 46. So there's some scandalous math, even for today, but definitely for the 1800s. He would actually remain with her as uh, whether you would call her a love interest or mistress or something for the rest of his life. But he did everything he could to keep that relationship a secret. He would never allude uh, to Ellen uh, publicly and almost to no one privately. Even though his friends were aware of the relationship, he would say nothing of her publicly uh, for the rest of his life. Um, they weren't really called this back then, but Dickens really had one of the most loyal fan bases that any author ever had with his readers. And people, they revered him as a writer, but also as a man. But the man, well, <laughs> he made some choices in life that, if found out by his loyal readers, may cause them to head for the exits and he could lose their loyalty. So Dickens, like many great artists, he was a very flawed instrument. And while we can certainly appreciate the things he has written, um, you know, there are some takeaways from his life that hopefully we can all learn. Um, and, and I think the goal we all have, or at least should strive for, is to have a life of integrity. Now, I think that word gets misunderstood. A lot of people equate integrity with perfection, which obviously is not attainable. 
But when you look at the root of the word integrity, it's the same root from which we get integrate. In other words, we bring all these different elements and we bring them all together into one. Uh, when there was racial integration with the schools, it was bringing different races and cultures of people into one school. So if, if we want to have integrity, to me, it means that we are the same and we are consistent in all situations. We bring all the different aspects of our life into one. Uh, we, we don't have compartmentalized versions of ourselves. There's not there's not us at work and us at home and us at church and us on the golf course and us driving. We bring those things together into one. As a youth pastor, I, I remember when I would go to the school to uh, um, either meet with a principal or be a part of a, a club and speak there. But I would have students from my youth group who weren't expecting to see me. And suddenly there I am in the hallway and they're almost dodging into their locker so that I don't see them. Uh, and they're, <laughs> they're running around the corner of the hallway so that I don't pay, uh, pay notice to them. And to me, that was telling that that meant, oh, no, my worlds are colliding. And if our worlds are colliding, it means we're not living in integrity. I know we're all sinners. We, we need the Lord's grace daily. I certainly fit into that category. I think that Charles Dickens, whether because of privacy or shame or fear of economic loss, he kept his relationship with Ellen Turnin so secretive. He was just creating a lot of extra work for himself. You know, James 1 tells us that a double-minded man is unstable in all he does. And I think this is why. And yes, we don't have to tell the world all of our sins and secrets, but we need to tell someone, Jesus being first. I mean, when we keep secrets from him, we're kind of showing that we know it's not right. Someone might say, well, you know, he already knows because he's omniscient. Well, yeah, of course he knows, but why haven't we talked to him about it? Satan lives in secret places. He loves them. And if we find ourselves keeping certain parts of our life roped off, I just want to challenge us to bring it to the Lord. Bring him in on this. Don't shut him out because it only leads to instability. It only leads to something we have to keep people away from and not to see. And that's not, that's not a fun or healthy way to live life. Integrity starts with truth with God. And then maybe bring a trusted friend along as well to help you be accountable. There's no reason why our life choices need to obscure our life and our art. Well, when we come back, I want to pay tribute to the genius of Charles Dickens by reading the beginning of A Christmas Carol. I hope you'll enjoy.
New from My Truth Productions, it's COVID Christmas. Dr. Anthony Fauci puts a new spin on some of your all-time favorite Christmas classics. It's the most wonderful time of the year. When you're hugging through plastic, it's all so fantastic. The lockdown is here, but take cheer, it should last five more years. It's the happy happiest season of all when your loved ones are zooming depression is looming it stinks to be you when you can't can't even shop at the mall when i talk to jake tapper i'm feeling so dapper we'll blitz her with hair like the snow and there's Joe and Mika, so lovely to see ya. I don't think there's a way to say no. It's the most airtime I'll have all the year. Fox and friends will invite me. Today's show excites me, so bring on the fear. It's the most airtime I'll have all the There's no masking your love for COVID Christmas. It allows Dr. Fauci to entertain and educate at the same time. God bless you social distancing. Please stay six feet away. Your spit might kill me, this I know. Don't take offense, I pray. Staying the heck away from me will keep all germs away. Don't come near me, I don't want to die. Don't want to die. Don't come near me, I don't want to die. Never one to shy away from tough questions. Dr. Fauci pays tribute to New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Andrew, did you know that your policies would kill folks in the thousands? Andrew, did you know that you'd cash in and write a book for millions? Did you know that your order would jeopardize the old and try to rewrite history? power, fame, and gold. Oh, Andrew, did you know? And how about this heartwarming Yuletide favorite with a current event spin? COVID vaccine, COVID vaccine, you're really overrated. COVID vaccine, COVID vaccine, it's all been overstated. You think a shot will save the day? Wearing a mask is still the way. COVID vaccine, COVID vaccine, you're really overrated. It's the album you must buy if you don't want people to die. It's COVID Christmas. It's the most network time. It's the most cable news time it's the most airtime i'll get all the year
Christmas. Now available only on LP and 8-Track. Marley was dead, to begin with. There was no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Mind, I don't mean to say that I know of my own knowledge, what there is particularly dead about a doornail, uh, I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade. But the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, and my unhallowed hands shall not disturb it, or the country's done for. You will therefore permit me to repeat emphatically that Marley was as dead as a doornail. Scrooge knew he was dead? Of course he did. How could it be otherwise? Scrooge and he were partners for I don't know how many years. Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole assign, his sole residuary legatee, his sole friend and sole mourner. And even Scrooge was not so dreadfully cut up by this sad event. But that he was an excellent man of business on the very day of the funeral and solemnized it with an undoubted bargain. The mention of Marley's funeral brings me back to the point I started from. There is no doubt that Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I am going to relate. If we were not perfectly convinced that Hamlet's father died before the play began, there would be nothing more remarkable in his taking a stroll at night in an easterly wind upon his own ramparts, than there would be in any other middle-aged gentleman rashly turning out after dark in a breezy spot, say St. Paul's churchyard, for instance, literally to astonish his son's weak mind. Scrooge never painted out old Marley's name. There it stood, years afterwards, above the warehouse door, Scrooge and Marley. The firm was known as Scrooge and Marley. Sometimes people new to the business called Scrooge Scrooge and sometimes Marley, but he answered to both names. It was all the same to him. Oh, but what a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire, secret and self-contained, and solitary as an oyster. 
The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A frosty rhyme was on his head, and on his eyebrows, and his wiry chin. He carried his own low temperature always about with him. He iced his office in the dog days, and didn't thaw it one degree at Christmas. External heat and cold had little influence on Scrooge. No warmth could warm, no wintry weather chill him, no wind that blew was bitterer than he, no falling snow was more intent upon its purpose, no pelting rain less open to entreaty. Foul weather didn't know where to have him. The heaviest rain and snow and hail and sleet could boast of the advantage over him in only one respect. They often came down handsomely, and Scrooge never did. Nobody ever stopped him in the street to say with gladsome looks, My dear Scrooge, how are you? When will you come to see me? No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. No children asked him what it was o'clock. No man or woman ever once in all his life inquired the way to such and such a place of Scrooge. Even the blind men's dogs appeared to know him, and when they saw him coming on, would tug their owners into doorways and up courts, and then would wag their tails as though they said, no eye at all is better than an evil eye, dark master. But what did Scrooge care? It was the very thing he liked, to edge his way along the crowded paths of life, warning all human sympathy to keep its distance was what the knowing ones call nuts to Scrooge. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. It was cold, bleak, biting weather, foggy withal, and he could hear the people in the court outside go wheezing up and down, beating their hands upon their breasts and stamping their feet upon the pavement stones to warm them. The city clocks had only just gone three, but it was quite dark already. It had not been light all day, and candles were flaring in the windows of the neighboring offices and ruddy smears upon the palpable brown air. The fog came pouring in at every chink and keyhole and was so dense without that although the court was of the narrowest, the houses opposite were mere phantoms. To see the dingy cloud come drooping down, obscuring everything, one might have thought that nature lived hard by and was brewing on a large scale. The door of Scrooge's counting house was open that he might keep his eye upon his clerk, who in a dismal little cell beyond, a sort of tank, was copying letters. Scrooge had a very small fire, but the clerk's fire was so very much smaller that it looked like one coal. But he couldn't replenish it, for Scrooge kept the coal box in his own room. And so surely as the clerk came in with the shovel, the master predicted that it would be necessary for them to part. Wherefore, the clerk put on his white comforter and tried to warm himself at the candle, in which effort, not being a man of a strong imagination, he failed. A Merry Christmas, Uncle! God save you! cried a cheerful voice. It was the voice of Scrooge's nephew, who came upon him so quickly that 
This was the first intimation he had of his approach. Bah, said Scrooge. Humbug. He had so heated himself with rapid walking in the fog and frost, this nephew of Scrooge's, that he was all in a glow. His face was ruddy and handsome. His eyes sparkled and his breath smoked again. Christmas a humbug, Uncle, said Scrooge's nephew. You don't mean that, I'm sure. I do, said Scrooge. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Come then, returned the nephew gaily. What right have you to be dismal? What reason have you to be morose? You're rich enough. Scrooge, having no better answer ready on the spur of the moment, said, Bah! again, and followed it up with humbug. I wanted you to be acquainted with the original text of one of the great stories, and really next to the biblical account, the most famous Christmas story of all. And we appreciate you being a part of the Matcast. Our theme music is by Sound of Fusion. We hope to see you again soon. This has been a production of Monumental Ministries. For more information about our books and resources, go to mattministry.com. Hey, thanks for having me over. I had a wonderful time. Thank you.